Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Grace Rocks Pod with Coach Jason Pridmore, presented by Bike911.com. That's right. Alex Asante, Bike911.com. He's one of those attorney-type people out in California. You get in an accident or, you know what I mean, you need some help. It's contract time. Go reach out to Bike911.com. All right. Hi, I'm Greg. Jason Pridmore is here. Hi, Jason. What is up, Greg? How are we doing? Oh, you know. Very oh, good. you know. Y'all healthy, very- are you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just got the little cough left after my <laughs> my excursion there. Yeah, uh, we got a big one for you though, Jay. How you doing? Everything good? Yeah, pretty good. Getting Is ready it nice to, weather uh, out in California, Jay? You uh, swinging so the club perfect. a little bit? A little bit? Per- swinging the club? Day. 70, 70 degrees. Not a cloud in the sky. It's pretty good right now. <laughs> well, we're going to invite Steve English onto the podcast. He's the World Superbike commentator. He also keeps his toe in MotoGP and all that kind of stuff. We're going to update you on MotoGP Fantasy, the situation from last week. We do have a resolution, and we're going to tell you who's going to win the JP43 training deal from our thing because we figured out what we're going to do and all that kind of stuff. So we might as well just welcome Stevie in since he's hanging out in somewhere in the United Kingdom. Hi, Steve English. How are you? Fuffle crap. <laughs> Somewhere in Ireland, mate. I tell you what, I tell you what, you've had one show in five weeks oh, and you can't man. look at a map. This Greg, is unacceptable. I'm that's good right stuff, now. GWG. He doesn't even know what he did there. That's No, beautiful. I do. Dude, I'm totally joking. It's yeah. like calling an Australian a New Zealander or a New Zealander Whatever. an Australian. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get him. No, I'm trying to get no, after him. It's much away. worse, Greg. It's, it's much worse. worse than that. It's yeah. worse than that. Might be. JP knows all about it. He did his tour tour around Dublin. Did my tour around Dublin, and I know that the weather's not as good there as it is here. Or yeah, probably Stevie, you're a golfer. You, you heard Jason talk about his weather. His go- how's your, how's your golfing going, buddy? The last time I played, I won, and that's all that matters. You're that's only it. as good as your last out. Only as good Dude, as the if weather you play, you to be. If you play alone, of course you huh? win. <laughs> I won. You know, he's playing a 14 hole golf course too. By the way. That's just because of the light, not because of the conditions, though. It gets dark early here, Jay. Ah, yes. It gets dark early. What time did it get dark over there right now? Probably about 4.30. Oh. oh. How long is... So when's it get light? Uh, probably about 8 a.m. Yeah. You can't get a full round of golf from 8 a.m. to 4.30? Oh, well, I can. I've got loads of time now that Superbikes has finished. But it's for the other people that the challenge is if you're doing a competition, Greg. Yeah, I got you. Okay. All right. Well, it's indoor season here in the U.S. for archery, so what do I know? Same woes, though. Archery, golf, same woes. Okay. Well, listen, let's go ahead and get into our news presented by Arai. All right. So just, I want you to pretend like there's music playing. Where's right your now. music at? Where's it it's at? It's not working. It's not working. Steve loves the music to our podcasts, he loves it. Great tunes. Great tunes. Brings back good memories. Almost, almost daily, he listens to the music that we have on our podcast. I can send it to you in a link. Yeah, he'd I can love send that. you his MP3 file. You can love download that. it on the permanent. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, everybody, it's a holiday season. Uh, you know, if you're if you celebrate the Christmas, it's right around the corner. Go to ryeamericas.com. Or if you're from Europe, I don't know, go to whatever your your site is. Go check out the helmets. Go to your local dealer for fitment, some nice colorways and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Let's just start off our news. Jason Pridmore, this is big news in your world. Uh oh. Moto America is partnering with Alt Sports Data for exclusive global, global sports betting data rights. Now, what does this mean? Well, Jason, in doing my research, and Steve is doing my research, of course, I, you know, talk to people. So basically what this means is, is with this company, 
Moda America will be providing all of their live data, right? So lap times, qualification, points, all that kind of stuff. And so this company, uh, what's it called? Alt, Alt Sports Data. Mm-hmm. They're out there now pitching Moto America as a series to the betting to the the the, the, the betting books all over the world. Mm-hmm. And so when all that stuff happens, you're going to be able to bet Moto America in real time. Now, Jason, I don't really understand what any of that means, and I know that you, every now and then you've done a little bit of betting here and there. Uh, Stevie's Stevie's kind of the expert in gambling in this podcast, but yeah, oh, is that oh Stevie mm-hmm. is okay? Yeah, he is. Now, look, I don't want to be thrown under a bus here, Jay. You know, it's <laughs> you know, it's it's just a bit of fun, Charlie. You, when the fun stops, stop, Jay. You that's know, that's right. the important thing to remember about gambling. The funds are the fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. A, a little bit of both. A little yeah, bit of both. a little bit of both. Yeah, it's 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 hard it's, to tell with that British accent of yours. <clears throat> oh, God, yeah. You can see how I doubled down on that one. See how I doubled um, down. You know what? You know what? The most important thing to remember is. Uh, Everyone prefers Jeff White than Greg White. And that's that all is matters, absolutely right? true. Is that's, my nose bleeding? I just got that. You just got, got punched tagged. right in the nose. Wow. You, you know, it's, it's well done, it was Steve. mildly disturbing when Moto America announced this and my phone started to blow up. <laughs> um, I, I was writing to somebody. Who was I writing to about futures? And they're like, Jay, what is that? And I'm like, really? Like, like <laughs> I, a future is basically, you know, if they put out – they put out odds on who you might think might win the championship or who you might think this, that you, you bet it and it's a future. Right. So, but I think this is cool that, you know, Greg, um, that the idea of sports betting becoming more, uh, well, it's gotten big everywhere now, football everywhere. Now you just see commercials all the time for sports betting, um, weekend, week out. doesn't matter where it is. Uh, even on ESPN on Sports Center on Sundays, they're they're going to sports guys and going, "What's the bets? What's the best plays?" You know, this and that. Um, it's going to probably bring in, and I think overseas, Stevie, right? They've been they've been betting on road racing and stuff over there for years. Yeah, like what I am a little bit confused about though is data driven AI gambling, all this kind of stuff, their algorithms and all that. That works well for sports that are very defined. Mm-hmm. You're watching the NFL, you're watching baseball, you're watching basketball. You can always take it. We've got 12 minutes left. There's three points between them. Mm-hmm. This is the situation or whatever it is. And you're able to put it into an algorithm to really define what's going to happen. With racing, it's not really like that. You've got 18 laps. So if you're leading at the start of the first lap, yeah. you've got, let's say, a 70% chance of winning. Yeah. If you're leading at the Midway end of point. the penultimate lap mm-hmm. and the white flag goes out, you've got a 90% chance of winning. Like it's not. Well, you're talking I mean, about like it, live it, betting things. Like, so like when you yeah, live bet, that's what I don't really understand about it. For taking all the information and the data that you'll get from live timing and this, that, and the other, like I, it'll be interesting to see how it's different to just regular betting on racing. Because like when you bet on a MotoGP race, like during a practice session or anything like that, usually the, the market is suspended until the end of that session. Yeah. And then you can bet for your race or your, or your qualifying results or yeah. whatever it is. You might get in-race live betting where it might say, right, we're halfway through the race. We're only considering that the top three can win this one. You know, you've got odds on Bagnaya because he's in front, Martin because he's coming through, whatever it is. But it's usually up to the to the bookie to then have someone that's yeah. actually watching the event. Well, the algorithms that you're talking about, like so, Greg, like I could literally bet. You can literally bet every play in football. 
Like the second that the yeah, play is they, over, you could bet will they get a first down, will they convert, whatever. You can. Okay. So I think that the live betting process, like Steve's saying, as far as during like in a race, that's going to be pretty difficult. Like if you've got a guy that you get a guy like Gagne or somebody that runs off the track down in turn five at Road America, like he did a couple years ago. Remember when he ran off the track with uh, yeah. Petrucci when they got together? And I don't know how quickly it could be monitored or updated during that, that, okay, Gagne has come across the line 45 seconds behind in 20th place. You know, his odds of finishing in the top three are, you know, plus 1,000, which basically means you'd bet 100 to win 1,000, you know, um, or top five or however it works. So that will be interesting. I am more interesting to, to, interested to see with all the different types of sport books and things that are out there, all the different websites that you can go to to gamble. Is that allowed to – could any of those come into the series as sponsors? You know, like that is a good question. I think it's a good question. The, uh, the one thing I can tell you is that yeah. in, in speaking with Chuck Axlin about this for, I've known this is coming for months and months and months. Is that the idea behind you made it, money on the thing, Greg? Did you get did you get to bed in nice and early? <laughs> I don't. I don't really. I don't really do that. I mean, the only thing I do is slot machines, and that's pretty much it. So I'm not really a like a gambling dude. But and I don't understand. Like you say the word parlay, I really don't know what the hell that means. But. Um, <laughs> so it, the idea is not to enhance what the current crowd, you know, has, right? Like to, to say, we're adding this to the current crowd. The idea is to introduce Moto America to new people, a new audience to give them an mm-hmm. option. It would make sense. I have no idea, but it would make sense that there isn't live betting. It's probably going to be the same way that MotoGP does stuff. Now I will yeah. tell you this, there is a high probability if if it hasn't been announced already today, that it will be announced soon that the same thing is going to happen with Supercross. Okay, yeah. so if anybody's sitting on their moral high horse right now, saying, oh, betting's the devil's work or whatever that shit is right now, I could tell you this, that also in speaking with the people at World Archery, World Archery runs, World Archery would be like the, the mm, Dorna or the FIM, right? So World Archery runs all the Olympic archery and stuff. They're the They're the highest level of archery they're going to roll out their betting in January as well. So there are other sports that are doing this and primarily it's to just create some type of interaction. And if I had to guess, a lot of this has to do with just fantasy. The mm-hmm. amount of, of of interest that fantasy sports generate for the sport itself is important. And so I think betting kind of goes along with that. That doesn't mean that Moto America isn't at some point going to have a fantasy league like the MotoGP Fantasy League. They might do that, but mm-hmm. it, but this is just one of those steps to bring Moto America more recognition around the world and to other people that don't know what Moto America is, Steve. Yeah, it's one of those ones that it's always quite interesting to see where money comes from in racing. Like it was very, very easy years ago whenever everyone was sponsored by a cigarette company and the bikes looked class because they only needed one sponsor. Now you need 40 sponsors. You need people coming in from different industries. Energy drinks companies are going down. So in the US, with gambling, as far as I know, it's it's legal in almost every state now, yeah? Uh, pretty I'm, close. Yeah, pretty like, close, I yeah. think so, yeah. Yeah. So like, with that being the case, then it suddenly opens it up to a whole new market. So all those companies are now looking for legitimate ways to market themselves. It's always been legal over here. So that's meant that for clubs in like the English Premier League, I think 90% of them had a betting sponsor 
a couple yeah. of years ago and, yeah. and now that's on the decline because government legislation is trying to bring that rein that back a little bit because when you look at a little bit like the NFL now when you look at any of the ads during the breaks in a TV broadcast it's basically nothing but ads for gambling mm-hmm. and obviously there's a responsibility that has to be had for something like that it, it's it's fine for like I'm 38 years old if I want to gamble that's my decision but if I'm 14, 15 watching this game, it probably shouldn't be three o'clock in the afternoon where you're just getting wall to wall ads to say, you know, it's five to one in the next goal score. You want to make some money, get it on this. So there is a responsibility for it. But what is going to be interesting is to see how it can be used to, like you said, Greg, bring in new markets. And that might be new circuits for for all that we know right now it might suddenly be that if this becomes something important that suddenly there's an investment from wherever like at the end of the day we're just after having the the vegas grand prix in formula one who would have thought we'd go back to vegas in formula one after the debacle they had in the 80s so it does show how things can change at the end of the day for moto america if it brings a new audience to the series then it's worth doing because a little bit like BSB and they've got their own betting partners, you need to try and make a domestic championship as big as possible. And if this opens it up, then it has to be done because you need to make money. You know, as riders, teams, broadcasters, whatever it is, if people aren't making money, they can't continue to compete. Just to give just to give some information, in state-run lotteries in the United States... 48 states participate in state-run lotteries. The only states that don't are Utah and Hawaii. So in terms of sport betting, at the last report that I see, which was like November 17th, 2023, there are just over 30 states that are now allow sports betting. So it's mm-hmm. it's creeping. There, I mean, dude, 20 years ago, there weren't 48 states that even allowed lotteries. I mean, I live in North Carolina, and for years there was no lottery allowed because they tied religion to gambling and, you know, and, and tried to avoid it that way. But, you know, as time has gone by and you've said, okay, for a lot of state lotteries, it's like, yeah, you pay a dollar to buy a lottery ticket, but 50 cents goes to the um, like education fund inside the state. So you're actually tying in, you know, a cause something good with whatever, yeah, something, yeah. something good or whatever it yeah. is. So, you know, that, that to answer Jason, Jason, that kind of answer your question. I think that it's a huge possibility yeah. that we could have, you know, somebody like FanDuel or something like that, maybe sponsor yeah. a team or sponsor a rider that would make sense when there's no ethical, you know what I mean? Like uh, problems or whatever to, to boost that. If, if it, if it caught on, I think that it would, you know, if you go to a state like Utah, it would be like the old uh, Marlboro bikes or, you know, yeah, you just have lines, but you couldn't yeah. actually put the word Marlboro. So there'd be a little adjustment, I think, possibly, you know, in that situation, if you weren't allowed to advertise any betting or whatever. But overall, I think uh, I like the move. I think it's good for the sport. I think it's trendy in a way. You know, you see archery going betting. You're going to see Supercross. You see all these other businesses. So we might as well. And you guys are 100% right. This is a business. It's about, you know, generating revenue. It's about keeping the series alive. Just one thing that is quite interesting about it, there are certain motorsports that are designed to be involved with gambling. Something like Speedway, four laps, one minute. Yeah. I'm putting a pound on the guy in the red helmet. You go to the race, there's, I don't know, 17 races through the night. Like, this is something that's set up for being able to gamble. It's, It's just like going to the Greyhound races, the horse races, whatever it is, short races, bosh, 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 and you're able to to make it work 
for MotoGP, for superbike racing, it's longer races. And That's it's right. also where you only get, you know, two, three races a weekend. So right. it's a little bit different, but I think it is something that it's good to see that there's something new coming in. But like I said, there is a responsibility that comes with it as well. Now, Steve, do you know, so so in Japan, the only form of legitimate betting is actually, Jason, uh, what I can't remember the name of it. It's not motor, but it's motorcycles. Yeah, they they're like 100, 150 yeah. cc's. They got really weird bars because they just yeah. turned left. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's Japanese Speedway. Yeah, it's Japanese Speedway, but it's called something. I can't remember the name of it, right? Do you know who's Do you know who's involved in that, Jay? Who's now one of the rising stars in no. in that in that Japanese betting series, the motorcycle series? No, Karen Oguru. No way. I I's sister Karen, that's who came funny. here. Yeah, she's, she's a rising star in that in that sport. And now that's an interesting deal because if you go search uh, online for it. It was run by the by the Japanese mafia forever and ever and ever. And then it's only been in the last like 10 years, 15 years where the government stepped in and cleaned up that whole organization. But yeah, you're right, Steve. I mean, Speedway is perfect. That's exactly kind of what this sport is. It's these small displacement bikes with really weird looking handlebars because they just lean the thing left over on a banked oval. And uh, I can't remember the name of it. We were, I was talking about it with Jeff Wheel from Arai, too. Yeah, and he was like, yeah, that's what Karin's doing. That's pretty wild. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there'll be, when you look at the race weekends and stuff, you're just going to be, I, I don't know what they'll do. They'll lay odds, I'm sure, on where riders will finish or how they'll finish or, you know. But again, I go back to, depending on what websites, and I don't know this information, I don't know what websites are going to to have or allow races from Moto America to be bet on. So the thing too, that I always find funny about betting is this, is that, you know, if you go to, if you go to, I don't know what's a good example, you go to Manchester United, if you're a Manchester United fan, every week you're probably, it you, you want to put a little bit of something on your club, right? You're going to put, you know, something on Man U or, or Patriots or Eagles or whoever it is you are. It, it What it also does is it creates fan bases because if there's a guy out there that loves um if there's a guy out there that loves Marco Bedzecki he's going to want to bet on Bedzecki every week right so it's just kind of like I think what it does is it generates fan bases too we've kind of lost I think in the years we've lost all the manu- a lot of manufacturers especially in Motor America Stevie like over in World Superbike right now I know you still got a lot of manufacturer support which is good here in America we got Yamaha Suzuki stayed involved but like our Ducati bikes are all customer built, are all customer based. BMW is customer based. People are having to go out and pay money to ride those bikes. It's not like the manufacturers are coming in and handing out big money. So I think even with fan bases, when the manufacturers started stepping out, you might have a guy that's been on Kawasaki's for years. There's no Kawasaki representation for our races. There's like none. So I think that when guys, I think it's gone in the past now where people are so. Um, uh, committed to a to a uh, a brand, so like Greg and I have talked about this in the past. It's like back in the day, you'd ride with your friends to the track, and whatever bike you were riding, you were hoping that manufacturer was going to win. Now, I think it's a lot more based on personalities of riders of who people like, as opposed to actually the brand of bike that they're on, because that brand loyalty has been lost. I think in the way that road racing has gone here in America, with a lot of the a lot of the manufacturers not being directly involved, which is is sad, but I think that this this new sponsorship is going to create fan bases for riders probably even more 
um, now. So I think that's probably a good sign for our, for our series. Well, the other side of that coin is, Jay, whenever I heard that the Titans special teams coordinator had been fired on Monday morning, <laughs> I was glad for him to lose his job because he cost me money on Sunday. That's right. There so, you go. Do we yeah. want to have it where fans are, you know, willing to, to I don't know, get frustrated at a rider after he crashes trying to take the win? You That's know, right. like it's, you know, it's one of those things. You're going you're gonna to have that. And it's like, you know, if you look at like a middle of the road thing right now, if they were to lay odds on Superbike Championship, like a futures odds, you're going to look at Gagne and Bobier. And then you're probably going to start going down the list below and you'll think, well, you know, a guy like Josh Heron, you're, you're, you could probably get a decent return because he's a guy that's capable of winning the championship. His odds are probably going to be a little bit lower than that of Bobier or Gagne. So you might get like him that you can watch throughout the course of the year, uh, you know, depending on how odds fall. Now, the other thing, Greg, is uh, will they do this? They, are they doing this with each class or do we know? how that part of it kind of works. They're going to start with Superbike and Super yep. Sport. That's okay, what this company is what this company is pitching to these um betting houses. Okay. 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 So okay. so as of the time I talked, no one's really like, you know, said yes, we're going to carry it. Uh-huh. But but it's very early. And and okay. the thing was is that you know, we know that there are other sports that are going to be coming out with these announcements. So Moto America it was important for them to get this information out early. Yep. Um you know, just to let everybody know that they're involved, they're doing this, that they're, you know, progressive thinkers. So, but that was also last week when I spoke to them. So who knows? It yep. could be any day that one of these betting houses, I don't know what you call them. I mean, that would be, you know, that's going to say, yep, we're going to carry Moto America and here's where you go to bet. And then once that happens, then more people are going to jump on board. The key component is, is to say, we have a product that you can use, right? Yeah. We're, yeah. We are, you know, alt data and we're going to provide you with all this information. So now yeah. it's their job to go out and sell it. Okay. So that's kind of where we are. So once once more information becomes available and where you could actually place a bet, we'll let you know there. But Jay, what you were saying was about that people are rooting for people, not rooting for brands anymore, kind of rolls into our next news item. And it was it's a it's a bigger deal, I think, than people think. So obviously the RNF MotoGP team with Aprilia and you know that whole situation went away, but there's a new team that has taken over. They did the announcement this morning. It's Trackhouse team, which is based out of the United States of America. They're going to be the new MotoGP team on Aprilia's. And they did a video hosted by our friend Jamie Little, who's been around, you know, motorcycle, supercross, and some road racing for a lot of years and now is in the car world. But she did, she hosted it in Italy and they did the whole unveiling of this whole deal. And Jay, this. Trackhouse team, for those that don't know, who don't know anything about NASCAR, it's Justin Marks, who is a guy who grew up in Northern California, uh, who his first race, motorsports race he ever went to was actually bikes at Laguna. I don't know if it was AMA Superbike or MotoGP, but I don't know how old Justin is, but Jay, he looks like he's in his mid to late 30s. Like mm-hmm. he's a young dude. Yeah. So basically what's happened here is that a couple of years ago, he teamed up with uh, with his money and with Pitbull, the artist Pitbull, and they created this whole organization. They bought the Ganassi NASCAR team, and they are building a lifestyle brand that has racing in it. And Jay, the, the biggest thing to understand for the, that those people that are our older audience, Steve, how old are you? You got to be in your... Um, I'm, I'm 38, so I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm four years younger than the young Justin Marks, so I feel very young. <laughs> Justin's 34. You just looked it up. 
No, he's 42. Oh, he's 42. Okay. I'm four years younger than him. I've got four years to get a MotoGP right. team. There you go. Well, get off your ass. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> of course, there's th- there's those Suzuki slots that are up for grabs. I mean, we don't really know what's happening with those two grid spots. But anyway, so so the deal is this. What we do know, if you're older, all right, when you were growing up, being Steve, you fall into this category, then having a name on the side of a motorcycle, on the clothing of an athlete, had an effect on the brands that you buy. What I do know is that anybody who's under the age of 35 years old, nobody cares anymore. Okay, Branding by having a logo doesn't work. What works is I'm living my best life empowered by Coca-Cola. And so Coca-Cola has empowered me. And so you do it through content, right? You do it through uh, creating videos and posts and all these different things on the social media platforms. I think Justin Marks and, and Pitbull have taken this idea and... I talked to Roger Hayden about this this morning. He's a huge NASCAR fan, and I talked to him about the Trackhouse team. And Roger told me that as a fan, he's noticed a significant difference in how people interact with the team, with them trying to make it an experience, and that they look outside the box. You know, they hired, Steve, you know, I mean, they hired a driver who's from New Zealand. He races the Australian Supercar Championship. NASCAR did their first road race. They did it in Chicago. And this dude won the race. And he's the first driver to win a NASCAR race in his debut since 1936. Crazy. Something like that. Right. And that is uh, Shane Van Gisbergen. Now, they've also had Formula One drivers in their cars. They've done a bunch of different stuff, gotten people. So they, they're thinking outside the box. Where this is significant is they've already expressed a marketing plan, what they want to do to Dorna. And Dorna has bought into it. Aprilia has bought into it. And so there is real potential. Steve, you've been around the sport a long time. JP, you've been around the sport a long time. We have been through dozens of rich people that have come into our sport, motorcycle road racing, and said, I'm going to change this sport. This sport's amazing. The racing's great. The people are amazing. I'm going to change the sport. They're around for two or three years, then they're gone. In my opinion, this is not that. This is a legitimate player in the world who understands what they're doing. They're taking over two spots on the MotoGP program. They're about winning and about success off the racetrack. This is not a team designed to funnel Americans into MotoGP. This is a team that's designed to funnel good racers and 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 allow Aprilia to step up in a second bike team, you know, or, or second second tier team. Um. So anyway, I'm just curious to find out what your guys' impressions are. Everybody I've talked to who knows Justin Mark says that he is an awesome dude and he is an absolute go-getter. So what are your opinions about this? It just doesn't seem like there's just two extra grid spots being filled this time. All right, well, for me, I think uh, I, I actually got up and I watched it this morning myself. I didn't get to see it all the way to the end, but I saw the majority of it and it looked, uh, yeah, it was it. For me, Greg, I think that you put it best. It's not about necessarily filtering Americans in. This is a business for them. They want to put the best riders on the bikes that they can. And I think that that's important. It definitely had an American theme to it based you know, based off of the delivery of the bikes and things like that, which is great. Um, now, I haven't watched NASCAR in probably five years. Like I, went, I go through my phases with it, but I haven't probably watched it maybe closer to seven or eight. I know Roger is into it a lot, Roger Lee, um, which is great. Um, or Roger Hayden. I, I still call him Roger Lee. So, um, you can go either way with him. He says, uh, that's great. Many times. That's great. Yeah. Raj. Anyways. Um, 
The thing is, is that I did watch that one race from Chicago. How funny is that? I forget where we were, but I did watch the one race and I got to see history made um, during that during that event. So I had heard of these guys. Um, I think the fact that they've come in and just the presentation this morning, you're right. It looked a little bit different. It looked more like these guys are in for the long haul. They're in for a long time. Um, where did they actually do that? Where did they actually do it at, Greg? Was it in Indy or somewhere? Not not Indy. Was it? No, in no. Indy? They did it in Milan, in Italy. Oh, they did it in Milan. Yeah, Didn't know that. Okay, I think it's Milan. That's where they were. But they I were thought it was over here. No, okay, no. They, so did, they they brought Jamie over. They brought Justin over. Great. Because then you had uh, Carlos Espaleta from Dorna there. I saw him there. Yeah, Rivola, the CEO of Dorna there, and then the yep. other guy, the American guy who works for Dorna in yeah. Denver. I saw that's I saw all those guys getting introduced and I saw mm-hmm. I, I got to watch all that part of it. So I'm excited about it. I think it's great. I think it's nice that um, that somebody else was able to come in and rescue that team. There was never really Steve. It never really sounded like that team was going away. It sounded like that this has been going on in the background for a while. It seemed pretty easily uh, for RNF to leave. Like the last race of the year, it was all of a sudden it's like RNF's leaving. They're out. New people are coming in. Yeah, if you're 10 days after the last race of the year right. and then we make this announcement, that's not a decision that's made within 10 days. That's a decision that's been made over a prolonged period of time. I think it's quite a good move. Like Trackhouse came into NASCAR by buying Chip Ganassi Racing. So Chip had obviously had a very successful single-seater operation and then separate to that, the NASCAR operation. And then Trackhouse comes in, they had Ross Chastain on the bike, on the car, and he finished second last year in the championship. He's won, I think, four races in the last two years. So they've been competitive from the get-go by buying an operation. And that's exactly what they're doing with ORNF. Everything's going to be based in Italy. It's all going to be based out of the Aprilia factory. So Aprilia are going to run the bikes effectively, you'd imagine. Yeah. And then for Trackhouse they'll be able to be a little bit like what you see in superbikes with Yamaha or BMW, where they'll run the operation at the racetrack and the hospitality and all those kind of things. And that could be a really successful way to do it. I think for Aprilia, it's a good way to hopefully have four competitive Aprilias on the grid. If a team doesn't have the budget that they need to have, they're not competitive. I think we saw that with RNF. We saw that, you know, there's, just shortcomings through the course of the season when the by the time it all was getting announced there's a lot of leaks which always indicates there's a lot of people that haven't been paid there's a lot of people that are you know a little bit pissed off about a situation so i think this was something that was clearly on the cards for a while marks went to red bull ring to the race and you'd imagine from that point onwards there were a few discussions taking place and Mm -hmm. then the momentum would have grown but i think that one thing that is interesting for me is I've gone to NASCAR race. I worked at uh, Daytona for the 500. Uh, it must be, it was 2012. And at that stage, social media was pretty new. But in every single pit box, you had it where their Twitter handles or, you know, whatever they were on was all visible. It sounds like something so basic now, but people weren't doing that back in MotoGP in 2012. I think Lorenzo had it on his bike. If you can't follow me on track, follow me on Twitter. Mm. And that was about it, you know. But now you have it where, obviously, the handle becomes the most important thing. Riders will pick their number based on their Twitter handle. So mm-hmm. when you've got it where that's been the ethos in NASCAR from the get-go, and then Trackhouse have tried to take it on an extra step, then I think it's exciting to see what's going to happen for them in MotoGP. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think it's going to be, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be fun to see and see how it develops. And to your point, I think if, a, if it's being ran under the factory, if it's if the factory Aprilia team are actually running it and almost like delivering the bikes to track house, almost, if you will, it's not a bad way of going, is it? You know, so yeah, it's. I think one of the things that's that's interesting about it is, like you mentioned about American riders, their goal, like you both said, is to make money out of this thing. If there's an American rider that can come through, you'd imagine they'd be interested in it because it opens up a, a revenue stream. You talked about it on the podcast last week about Joe Roberts. He needs to find that consistency because we know how good he can be at different times. He turned down an Aprilia MotoGP ride three years ago maybe this ends up giving him a roundabout road to get into it, but he needs to prove that by being top three in the Moto3 World Champ- or Moto2 World Championship this year. So there is a possibility for an American rider, but they're going to have to earn it. It's not going to be, you know, I, I don't want to bag on Sean Dillon Kelly, but it's not going to be like Sean going into Moto2. You know, this is where you're going to have to earn that MotoGP seat if you want to be an American on the grid. And that's only a good thing because what we've seen over the years is you need to be competitive, otherwise people lose interest. So I'm quite interested to see what happens for Trackhouse, but also how that plays into things for Roberts as well. And I think that that's an important thing to remember because in the launch that they did on MotoGP.com, part of the conversation was that Trackhouse is going to help bring MotoGP to people in the United States. The, the sport is amazing. We see a lot of people, I get a lot of comments on on. Uh, you know, on Twitter, on Instagram, people sending me messages saying like, look, I like Formula One, but the racing has gotten so boring. I've discovered MotoGP and this is amazing stuff. So it would make sense if what we talked about just a few minutes ago, that people root for people, not for motorcycles. We know that an American audience is going to root for an American. So, you know, it's that whole stars and stripes thing. The one thing I do want to note in case anybody is curious about Justin Marks and why they launched this kind of Nikki Hayden replica livery thing that they did because you know when Nikki was on Ducati he was testing I believe it was Jerez or something Steve you may know better than I did but during the test I did this whole stars and stripes thing with the American flag all over the bodywork and this was kind of a a throwback to that one of the things that uh like Justin has grew up he said he grew up being a Nikki Hayden fan so much so that a couple of years ago he and Kyle Larson they owned a um uh, what do you call it? The the what's the racing series with the big wing and all that kind of stuff? Uh, the sprint cars, World yeah, Outlaws, yeah. World Outlaws. The Outlaws, yeah. They own yeah. an Outlaw team, and a couple of years ago, they did a whole Nikki Hayden '69 tribute on Nikki Hayden's birthday. That's cool. So, like, Justin has been a big fan of Nikki growing up, and if you look at his age, and you look at this is the hardest thing to think about, Jay. I was thinking about this. I'm like, wait a second. This guy is how old do you say, Steve? Forty two. 42, yeah. 42 years old, and he's like, I grew up a Nikki Hayden fan. Like, he was my hero growing up. And I'm like, damn, are we that old, JP? Yeah, yeah, we are. It's so crazy. Nick probably would have been close to 40-something, too, himself, I think. Oh, yeah, easy, because he was, when he was uh, 97, he was 16 as my teammate. Oh, yeah. So, So, you you know, you look at it. Yeah, I mean, he's. I think he'd be in his 40s. So, yeah. Just about the livery as well. It was from Nikki's first test on the Ducati. On the Ducati. So whenever you move from Honda across. At the Valencia so, test. Uh, yeah. A little yeah. bit like what we get now whenever you Marquez on the really cool looking Ducati this week and all that. So yeah, that, that was, was his one. Was that one of the best you've ever seen? Marquez's livery this last week? I thought it looked absolutely sharp. 
I thought it was great. And then when I saw with the leathers, the helmet, the gloves, the boots, I just thought it looked looked apart. It looked exactly what it should look it like. so good. For one of the big stories we're going to have for the, the next few months is Mark on the Ducati. You want it where all the pictures you see are something that looks class. It's a little bit like when Lorenzo went on to, I, I think it was the Honda and... You know, it all it all looks the part, yeah. except for on the track. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. By the way, as a side note, people are now they're on the band. This is what we're going to see the next couple of months. Is that all these X racers or people coming out saying that Marquez going to Ducati is going to end MotoGP's, you know, like appeal, right? Eight different racers winning a race, and hey. almost everybody on the podium at some point, like the whole thing. And I don't necessarily think that that's true. Greg, how is that is that crazy to you though? Because they talk about like F one being as big as it is, and they had one guy win nineteen of the twenty two races or whatever it is this year. It's like, it's like what lose appeal to what? Who's saying that? You know what I mean? Like we had fifteen different riders on the podium in MotoGP. There's a hell of a lot more intriguing stories in MotoGP when you look at the actual racing side of it than there is an F one that is just more of a you know for me it's a it's more of a TV show you know. But that's the beauty of it, JP. The storylines in F1, we see them in Drive to Survive. And that's what people fell in love with. Now, for me, every time I could probably watch Drive to Survive now because F1 always clashes with superbikes. So there's a lot of races I don't see. And I'm not as I need to watch F1 now like I used to be. So maybe I could watch Drive to Survive and kind of, you know, have that reality suspended. But we know what it's like in racing paddocks that means that you can see this as being pure manufactured drama, but for a lot of people, it's good TV and that's what got them into it. And MotoGP superbikes, whether it's in Moto America or World Superbikes or British Superbikes, everything looks great, but we don't have the money the money you have in Formula One to be able to have the productions that they have to really push it like they do in Formula One. And that's why F1 has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. But we have to wait and see what happens with MotoGP going forward to see whether or not that there is a little bit more of an incentive to try and create that. But you need to be able to to build and develop all those storylines and try and give people something a little bit more exciting than just you know a season review video. Well, see, that's the thing that's been fascinating to me just in the years that I've been alive. If you look at what was really what's really popular, whether it's a telenovela or a soap opera. If you look at a soap opera and the popularity of it, and you go, well, these are just people that have drama, but they're just standing in a house. All, that's all they do. They stand in a house. All, like, there's no real, there's nothing, there's no real action, right? It's just people talking. But it draws people in. Ultimately, people want to know about people. They want access. That's where I think the internet has really created problems for people and a lot of uh, uh, success for people is those people that are willing to grant people access into their lives. That's why you see people cooking or people playing video games or whatever it is. And really, if you boil it down, what we create in motorsports is content. We're content generators. We do that through racing. But what you're doing is you're getting a couple thousand people out of their house and they travel around to one place and they're all in one area, a racetrack right? Whether it's crew chiefs, mechanics or whatever. And they all have one goal to go win a race. And that just creates drama. Whenever, anytime you put a bunch of different personalities together, it's racing, football, whatever. It's, it's 
real reality TV. Reality TV is horseshit. There's no such thing. There are producers that manipulate people. They get them tired. They get them drunk. They whirl the camera. They whisper in their ear. It's not real. Anybody who thinks reality TV is real, good luck. I, I You're adorable. <laughs> but racing is actual reality TV because you have something at stake, right? Winning races or getting on a podium or someone's career, and that creates natural drama. And so what Formula One and Drive to Survive has done has captured that and brought access to people's feelings and the drama. And that's what draws people in. And that's what, unfortunately, Steve, you know this as well as I do. Jason, you know the same thing. MotoGP tried a couple years ago on Amazon and the execution was brutal because that first couple of weeks, it was dubbed. It was all English dubbed and they couldn't figure out how to fix it. And then that was it. People stopped watching it. Even when they finally fixed it, it was over. It was like a one. They rated yeah. it a one star. It and so sucks, man. it was an it was an just an absolute epic failure. On uh, and and I don't think anything that has to do with MotoGP, although the open of the show was just dumb as shit. You know, you have like some guy in a tuxedo going to a gala, Quateraro. It's like, dude, show me action, show me racetrack stuff, show me drama. Anyway, Steve. But that's a little bit like the Mark Miller films. I loved the first few, like whether you're looking at Faster or the uh, Laguna 2005 one. And all of those were really cool. And then as the series went on, even for me, I kind of lost interest in it because I was looking at it and I was thinking, this isn't really adding anything to it. And, you know, they were great when they came in and they would have generated a lot of interest. They would have generated fans, but you need to capitalize on that and you need to move it along. Like I look at how I got into the NFL and it was NFL films. You know, you have great production of games from the seventies, you know, and you're looking right. at it and you're thinking, this shouldn't be something that's interesting to me. You know, this yeah. isn't something that with a grainy picture and, you know, limited cameras and all this kind of stuff, it shouldn't drag, drag me in. But I remember listening to or watching one and it had the the autumn wind is a raider, that poem. And suddenly I was just like, fuck, I need to watch this. Yeah. And then I became a fan. And it's small things that drag you in. That's right. And then the bigger picture keeps you there. And that's where, you know, again, it comes down to resources. You know, when we were talking about the gambling, I said, you know, you need to be able to generate money to make people interested in your sport. The reason for that is, if you can't pay people enough, you won't get good people in. So you will get the same thing done, but it won't be done to the same degree. And that's the problem that you have is that you have to spend the money to be able to to create the buzz that you need to then have, you know, big crowds. I was looking at pictures when, when Marquez had his last round for Honda at Valencia. I was looking back through pictures to be able to, you know, post a few of him on the Repsol Honda bike. And I looked at some in Coda and it was there at the end of the back straight, you know, where it, uh, it winds back on itself. Tight it must left, be what, yeah. 10, 11, 12, something like yeah. that. And the grandstand is full in the background of the picture. And you're looking at it thinking, wow, MotoGP is massive, you know, yeah. and that's what you need. You need to be able to have it where at Valencia, that whole grandstand is absolutely packed out because everyone wants to see, you know, whatever it is, Martine against Bagnaya. Marquez's last race, the test, you know, yeah. that's what you need to be able to sell. And don't get me wrong, like I'm making it seem like it's an easy thing to do. If it was an easy solution, it would have been done already. It's just difficult to make people generate the, the money for motorbike racing. 
you know, to unless your the point, to your point on to your point on that, Steve, you're in a paddock in World Superbike that is very deemed very friendly, um, accessible, all those things. And I find that MotoGP has tried over the last five, ten years, five years specifically, to get a lot more accessible. You know, I mean, they are like even at the test when you look at the test. Um, above the pits there on pit lane where people can stand up on top of the garages. I was full during the test. I think that they're trying to make it more accessible and they're trying to make it to where you can get closer to the, some of the guys and the stars and that because you have to. You have to make it to where people can. And that's, you know, you look at the grid on F1. Uh, this I, I watched the grid walk in Vegas. I was sitting in Simon's garage at, uh, at Chuck Walla and the you know, race is coming on at 10 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night, whatever it was. And it was like um, the grid walk there. I mean, Brundle couldn't even walk, couldn't even move, couldn't even do anything. I always feel like going out onto the grid of a MotoGP race, I just don't want to be one of those people that's just standing there in the way. You know, guys are trying to do a job, you know, but you, you've got to make it more accessible. To get to get kind of rolling the podcast part of this a little bit more, um, Greg, what I'd like to do is, is I think that what we're talking about right now as far as generating eyes and generating things, there's three gigantic stories in, in our sport going into 2024. And I think a documentary on all three would be pretty amazing to do. And if you could lump it together into one show, I think that when you look at Mark Marquez, Top Rack, and Johnny Ray this next this next year, you have all three world champions that have all moved to different brands, different teams, different bikes. There's, there's so much in those three riders right now that are going to generate eyes and generate um, responses, I think, throughout the course of the year. Just today, Top Rack was testing in Jerez. You know, I'm going to ask both of you guys. Um, I, I've got my opinions on it, but I'm going to ask both of you. Out of those three guys right now, when you start to look at Marquez, Rosgatioglu, and Johnny Ray, two different series, which one of those three, in your opinions, um, in your brain generates the most – I want to say hype or um, what one are you looking to see? What one of those three things are you most looking forward to see play out in 2024 out of those three riders? Well, in my head, yeah, obviously it has to be the superbike stuff. Mm -hmm. But if I take myself out from you know a working perspective, it's Mark on the Ducati. He's the best rider of all time. He's yep. gone through hell. He's going on to. You know, the bike that I, I thought one of the most interesting stats that I saw after the first tests was Val Hirunchi on the race website. He wrote that if the GP22 was its own manufacturer entity, it would have finished second in the Constructors' Championship this year. Mm -hmm. So Mark's going on to that, you know, the, the year old Ducati bike. How can that not be the biggest story in the world? You know, right. we're going to see the best rider ever come back to win races for sure. Challenge for a championship, hopefully, you know, or we get to see that he's not the same mark that he used to be. But everything we saw in the last couple of years, whenever he he towed on the back of everyone in qualifying, he did all the things to just annoy people, shows you that he is still the same mark. So now we jump him onto the Ducati. It's just I can't wait to see what happens in Qatar. I think that to your point on that. I, I think one of the things that I'm really going to enjoy seeing, you know, Acosta came out in the year basically saying that, you know, MotoGP now has become a thing where everybody's friends and everybody's this and that. Um, I felt like you had Jorge Martin, who was a guy that just didn't give a shit, which I loved. He just was like getting on with it. I felt like it was him against all the other Ducati riders at the end of the year. I felt like everybody wanted to stay out of Bagnaia's way, but Martin was kind of on an Island, if you will. And, um, 
you know, had I been Honda, I might've gone up to Jorge Martinez and said, Hey, you know, here's five or 10 million, come and help us get this project back on because he has shown the desire and the ability to hang it out and want to win as bad as he did. He took Bagnaia down to the final weekend. So I also believe that your point with Mark Marquez, it's going to start to generate a lot more hostilities because he's going to be up at the front more. So I think that you might see some of the friendliness of MotoGP go away, which will create drama and stories. And I love that. I think that when I look at the three that, that we talk about the most, I think the guy that took the biggest leap of faith and the biggest jump is going to be a guy like Toprak. I think it's going to be super interesting to see which one between Toprak and Johnny, they're both have the ability now to win on three different manufacturers within World Superbike. Johnny's done it with Honda and Cowie, and uh, Toprak's done it with Kawasaki and Yamaha. I think that the Toprak thing um, has a bigger effect on a series than Marquez does on the MotoGP series, only because will he be able to bring BMW along and and get that bike up to where it should be? I think it's a really interesting story. Yeah, Top Rack has a bigger impact because if he doesn't move, Johnny doesn't move either. That's right. Whereas Mark's moving because Honda's been a disaster. You've got, like I said, the best rider of all time, and he hasn't been able to do anything with the bike. So Honda, Honda's actually probably in the best position now because they can just try and improve their bike without the pressure of having Mark on the bike. So now it's up to Honda to get rid of the margin for error and try and develop a good bike so that now in two, three years' time, they're able to tempt someone to make the jump onto that bike because we saw it in the off or in the last couple of weeks. Nobody really wanted to go on to that Honda. They yeah. got Luca Marini, so that's good. You know, I, I like the move for Marini because, you know, he's not going to get paid well if he's not a factory rider. Yeah. He's in this for for himself. So he's a factory rider now, which means he's going to be well paid. He's able to lead the development of a program. And most importantly for me as well, he's out he's out of the shadow from Rossi, which is really important because no matter what's said about Marini, you know, Grand Prix winner pole man, podiums, whatever you want to look at, he's always Valentino Rossi's stepbrother. And when you're on his bike, that's even magnified again. So now he's a Repsol Honda rider, and I think that's a really good thing. But, you know, for Toprak and Johnny, that happens because of Toprak. For Marquez, it happens because Honda were just not able to. And he wants to win again. And he wants to win again. Greg, what about you? What's like, you've heard all these now. What's What's got you intrigued uh, Johnny's got me intrigued the most yeah. because I think that it's more of a lateral move going from the Cowie to the Yamaha than anything else. And so I'm curious to find out if he's going to be frustrated with it or not. I think yeah. that even though it's a lateral move, uh, Yamaha seems to be more open to making some changes because it's a British based team or, you know, or Italian, but you know what I mean? It's not the Japanese factory team saying, let's take a conservative approach. The Mark Marquez thing obviously is going to create more eyeballs, going to create more buzz. But I think that once Mark gets two, two or three races under his belt and wins, that then it's just going to be just another another race season. You're not going to beat that, you know. You're not going to beat that dead horse like, oh, remember he was on the Honda. So he's going to create more eyeballs. But intriguing wise is going to be Johnny Ray. Is he still at the top of his game? Is this inline four cylinder Yamaha that much better of a bike or? Was it top rack and his braking and his desire to put the bike where places, you know, in places that weren't available 
so big that it was Toprak who made the difference. So for me, it's going to be the Johnny Ray thing. That's the most intriguing. I think that Toprak has more to lose, but he also has an excuse, meaning like Toprak doesn't want an excuse. He's not that guy. But I'm saying if if BMW, if the Germans don't listen to what Toprak has to say and they continue on the path that they're on and they miss the opportunity to develop the bike in a way that's going to allow him to win, it's going to be interesting. The one thing that we do know from Toprak is is that there was a, a, a video that came out yesterday, I think, and somebody said, describe it in one word. And he was like, uh, it's much faster. Mm-hmm. So all he said was faster. All he's talked about is how much speed the bike has. Hey, he didn't say that the bike is easy to ride or it was no, a blast. No. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, Steve, comment on what I'm saying because I could be off base. But to me, if I read the tea leaves at this point, it seems to me like Toprak understands that this BMW is not the most well-sorted bike, but it's got a hell of a motor. I have to say... I'll disagree with almost everything there because the BMW is a good bike. You know, when you talk to Michael Vandermark last year, the whole way through the winter, Vandermark said, this bike is better than it was. This bike has made good progress. And then Mikey ended up having his massive crash in Indonesia, breaks his leg in Assen, and then you're spending the whole time trying to recover. Gerloff jumped onto that bike, went from the Yamaha to the BMW, so the exact same transition Toprak did. The last four rounds, he was in the top five each round. You know, so... That shows that the bike is working well in lots of different places, and it's close. Now, Toprak is Toprak's a better rider than, for my money, anyone in World Superbikes. So he's a better rider than Gerloff. He's a better rider than Vandermark. He might make a little bit of a difference, but that might be all it needs. He jumped onto the bike in Portimao, and he did, I think it was 12 laps on the first day. He had a big technical failure. The oil seals broke on the bike, apparently, and that was the, the viral video everyone saw of a up in smoke BMW, but he was only two seconds off the pace in those two exits, so probably seven or eight fast laps. And that was in a track day with, you know, 40 riders out on track that are just track day riders. So he's having to deal with that and he's still fast. The next day he jumped onto the bike and he, again, he was still two seconds off the pace, but he only did 20 laps in damp conditions, patchy conditions. So that shows, you know, those first two days, it was actually pretty good for him. Went to Perret today as we recorded. He's going to test tomorrow as well and was relatively competitive as well. I think it was half a second off the kind of pace you'd expect. So again, for Toprak, all those things trend in the right direction. The big thing for him is he's got Phil Marin with him. And when you talk to Toprak about Phil, the biggest thing he always says is, Phil trusts me. So Mm -hmm. he follows the direction that I want to go in and he challenges me if it's wrong. So I think all those things mean that Jumping onto the BMW, it's going to be tough for him, but I don't think it's going to be impossible. And what I found interesting was on day two in Portimao, we had a crash. It's always one of those things that whenever you see a rider jump onto a new bike and have a crash, you think, oh, that's not good. You know, you've only done 10 laps on the bike and it's already bitten you. He had a crash at turn five in Portimao and he said that it was, you know, the, the rear went up and when it came back down, it slid and it just caught him by surprise. He didn't understand why it would react that way. That's exactly what Gerloff said would be the problem for Top Rack. He said, when that rear wheel comes back into contact with the ground, it totally unbalances the bike. You need to learn how to change that. Top Rack went back out again and then said, you know what? The front felt a lot better after that. I understood what I had to do. And that's the big thing with Top Rack is he's able to understand things and adjust. So I would be surprised if we go to maybe not the first round in Phillip Island because it's not really a Top Rack kind of track. But by the time we're back to Europe, I'd be really surprised if Top Rack's not really competitive. 
just because World Superbikes is actually quite close now with all the manufacturers and you only need to make that little step. I found it really interesting this year, Cameron Bobia jumps onto the BMW and was instantly very competitive. There are relatively the same rules in Moto America and World Superbikes. That gives me a lot of confidence Top Rack's going to be able to do something similar. Well, my concern with the BMW is is that it is in the long race is going the distance. It just hasn't seemed to take the step where the rear tire has been going the distance. And I thought that's one of the things that was more refined about the R1 is that the rear tire. I could be totally wrong, but that's kind of the way I view it. So I'm looking at it more from that perspective. The bike goes good. It turns well. It you know goes fast. But I also think that there's some more refinement and that's where Top Rack, I'm not sure is going to be able to make the difference. But And I think it's great. And I think that he's going to enjoy the extra speed being a, a bigger rider. But for me, what I'm really interested in is what looks like more of a lateral move in terms of performance, in terms of engine design, those types of things and speed is the Kawasaki to the Yamaha and how much of an impact that's going to have on Johnny. Yeah, and I think for Johnny, it is it is a lateral move in some ways, but it's still a lateral move to a better bike. You know, the Yamaha has shown with, whether you look at Gerloff on it, Locatelli, Toprak, Remy Gardner, Aguilar, all of these guys have been competitive on the Yamaha. That hasn't been the case with Kawasaki. You know, there's been a big gap between the factory Kawasaki riders and everyone else. Bassani jumped onto the Kawasaki and his first thoughts were, oh my God, I might be a factory rider, but this isn't what a factory bike should feel like after being on the Ducati. So I think for Johnny moving to Yamaha, I think he needed something that was going to give him a reason to get out of bed in the morning because staying on the Kawasaki wasn't going to do that. And at the end of the day, if if he's willing to put his money on the line to get out of that Kawasaki contract, and signing for Yamaha, that shows all that you need to know about his motivation to make this project work. I think it will work because Johnny's still a great rider. You know, oh, we saw yeah. that this year. The season started as a disaster. Australia, Indonesia, you know, it couldn't have been any worse for him, really. And then he just grinded out podiums and found a way to be able to be competitive again. Obviously, the win in Most was in changeable conditions, but you know, that still showed that he's still got it. You know, he still wants to win. And this move was, you know, it was it was so interesting. Like when, when Chuck turned up at Donington, you were kind of looking at it saying, <laughs> why is he here? Yeah, yeah. Laguna was just being repaved the same weekend, I think. And you're thinking, why is he here? You know, mm-hmm. Johnny's got a contract for next year. And then you find out exactly why he's there because they needed to get out of the Kawasaki contract. They wanted to go to Yamaha. I think his move's the easiest of the three. In the sense that, you know, people would look at Marquez's move as being easy to get on a Ducati. I still feel like with that, he's got to race seven other Ducatis. And I think that, you know, when you look at the the probabilities there, it's going to be interesting to see if, like you say, Steve, if, if Marquez is the best ever, um, will he have that extra tenth or two per lap to just do what Mark did before when he was on the Honda and just be able to pull away from guys? How much is it going to step people's levels up? Um, who's going to be the one? And I think it's going to be Martine that is just not going to give a shit that it's Mark Marquez. He's going to go out there and be hammering away, which I love. Um, Top Rack's move is, is difficult, I think. Um, you know, you bring up the fact that Gerloff and VDM said the bike is great. They are the, the bike could be better. It could be getting a lot better, but it's still not where it needs to be. We haven't really been able to see anybody sustain a, a race pace up at front. I forget what round it was because Gerloff always comes good at the end, too. He's like, the bike seems like it's not bad on tires, maybe, at least under Gerloff's. Uh, in, in, uh, in, under his watch. So I think, though, that it's going to be, will they really be able to make the bike 
better to where now they can actually get further up the front. Even with the lap times that we see right now, until you see a full race run at a test, where if you're at a race run, Stevie, and you're at a test and you see Top Rat go out and put 30 laps together and, you know, that's going to be the teller. I don't think the one lap pace um, is, is the one lap pace is fine, but you never really know. Like, you know, the winter test, like you always say, when it's cooler in Jerez, the Cowies always work great there in the, in the cool. When it gets, temperature gets up, they go shit. So I just think that Johnny's move is going to be the easiest because he's going from a great team to a great team on a bike that he knows is capable of winning. Um, and it's going to give him motivation. I think that if Yamaha goes another direction because the setup changes for Johnny are going to be a lot different than they were for Top Rack, I think so Johnny's going to find nuances with that bike that are going to work better for him um, than maybe Top Rack was able to get out of the bike. I don't, I'm not saying the lap times are going to get any quicker. I'm saying that he'll find ways of getting himself around that bike, you know, but I think Top Rack's move is, is a lot riskier, even though I think if he had two bad years at BMW, he's still going to be able to go anywhere and sign on with somebody. What was interesting with Top Rack was when you ask him about the move to BMW, he always said it was about trying to prove that he could win on something else because he was disrespected. You know, mm-hmm. Yamaha didn't want him for MotoGP. They gave him, you know, a test that was 100% designed just to say we've given you a test. Yeah. One bike. So as he said himself, if I crash, I've got no nothing else I can do. So I'm just riding around. So he's not been given a fair shot at getting the MotoGP seat. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at it and he's seen Franco Morbidelli spend two years on the bike doing nothing. And he has to be thinking to himself when he's doing that test in Aragon, why is not letting me show what I can do? And that's yeah. what gave him the motivation to go to BMW. He didn't want to go to Ducati because he, he the Ducati's the best bike on the grid. You win on the Ducati, it's because of the Ducati. So he yeah. wants to go to BMW to prove himself. I think one of the things that's going to be probably key for Top Rack is he's so good in those opening couple of laps at finding the right place to put his bike. Mm-hmm. That, that then means that instead of being eighth on the first lap, he's in the top five right. and suddenly you're in the race. And that's one of the big things for him is that as long as he's in the race, he's going to have a chance. Johnny's a little bit like that as well. Like we always see it where the reason why Johnny and Top Rack have so many close clashes on track is because they're basically the exact same person that just rides bikes differently. Yeah. And that's what's going to be interesting when Johnny jumps onto the Yamaha and Phillip Island and those early rounds. Can he win? Of course he can. It's Jonathan Ray. It's a yep. Yamaha. It's a proven package. He's going to be re- regenerated by it all. You know, moving away from Power Reba is going to be a good thing as well because he's going to work with Andrew Pitt. Everything's a fresh start. He brings Yuri over as his mechanic. He's got Davide as his electronics guy. They've already worked together before Davide went to Yamaha. So he's going to have a good crew around him that's going to give him a lot of confidence. You know, himself and Pity are mates for 15 years. So all of those things point to a happy Jonathan Ray. He's going to have to ride the bike differently to Top Rack, but Johnny's not slower than Top Rack. He's just different to Top Rack. And that's, that's right. where I'm really interested to see how he finds a way to be able to win on the Yamaha against Bautista. Right. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that that's, that's really well put. And I think for Pity, it's, the, the motivation of Yamaha now is going to be great. And it's, uh, I'm interested in seeing how, how all three of those guys' seasons really start playing out. What's the first test that you'll be going to, Stevie? Because I know they were at Jerez today for some shakedowns, um, and you didn't go to that one. But you said you got some stuff coming up in January, huh? 
Yeah, the Harass test was closed. KTM MotoGP test, so I wasn't able to get to that. So I'm going to January in Portimao and Harath, or Harath, Portimao. I think it's 24th, 25th, and then a few days off. So probably a little bit of golf just to be able to okay. ease myself into the new season. And then yeah. go to Portimao for two days. And then Australia, two days testing before Phillip Island as well. So everyone's got six days of testing and the build-up to it. On the, and, that's, and that's with every team, correct? Yeah, pretty much every team will be there. Usually there's a couple of the Italian teams might skip one of them and then go to, let's say, Kawasaki organized the first test at Jerez, Ducati the second test in Portimao. So maybe you'll have it where, you know, some people are only going to do one of those tests. But if you're serious about what you're looking to do, you're doing both of them. And that's what's going to be really cool to be able to go out to those tests and just get ready for the season. Because there's no reason that World Superbikes next year shouldn't be absolutely amazing you're going to see loads of riders on the ducati that are going to be competitive all of them fighting for bautista's seat if alvaro retires top rack on the bmw johnny on the yamaha you know there's storylines everywhere and that's what's going to be exciting for for everyone in superbikes next year steve do you think that with these changes made by these two marquee riders top rack and johnny that they close the gap to bautista though <laughs> Johnny's going to close the gap. Johnny's on a better bike, so he's obviously going to be more competitive next year. Top mm-hmm. rack, top rack, top rack can't beat Alvaro on the Yamaha. That's the one thing that's been shown because you need to be perfect. Because Alvaro doesn't have to be perfect; he just needs to make sure that he keeps out of trouble and he's able to win his races. I think for top rack, what's going to be interesting is his first thoughts on the BMW were: this bike is fast in a straight line. This is something that he's struggled with on the Yamaha. The wings make a big difference as well. He said that coming over the the crest in Portimao on the exit of the last corner, he didn't have to fight the bike like he did on the Yamaha. He was saying a lot of the times on the Yamaha, he's trying to get the bike upright straight away so that he's able just to drive out of the corners. Now he's able to be a little bit more natural with the exit at the corner as well and then not have to fight it as much coming over something like that. So the wing is helping for that. So, you know, <laughs> top rack, top rack, top rack's amazing. Like I, I, I don't, I don't often sound like a fanboy, but top rack makes me a fanboy, and I don't want to underestimate top rack. You know, I think he's gonna, he's gonna win races next year. It might just be the Super Bowl races that he wins. Like you said, Greg, in the longer races, it's a struggle on the BMW. But as long as he's able to win races next year, that's what he did at Yamaha in year one, and then year two he made the big step. You know, I think. For me, it's a disgrace he's not on a MotoGP bike. Mm-hmm. Because if he goes to MotoGP and it doesn't work out, fair play. You know, he's not as good as we all think he is in superbikes. But when you look at what he did at Jerez in that last race of the year, Portimao, so many times he was able to win races or fight for a race win that he had no right being at the front. And that's the hallmark of a great rider for me. I mean, that yeah. is the combination. Yeah. There are riders that can race. There are riders that can go fast. But when you get those rare people that can put both together, and Top Rack loves racing, he, he like it just seems that when it's close and it's tight, and he especially if there's braking zones, he's got your number and he's got people thinking behind him. If if he's behind you, that's where riders are thinking. They're thinking behind you. It's one of those ones. I remember like whenever I was a kid, like my my earliest memories of racing are watching Formula One, and it was always Senna putting his car into a place where he was just saying. If you don't want to crash, give the corner to me. 
yeah. and Tom Brock's like that as well. And you know, it's very rare that you know it leads to an incident, and yeah. that's what makes him really, really great as well. Because all of the other riders know exactly what's going to happen, and you're going to be given that inch, but nothing more. And you know, you put him onto the BMW. You know, it it mightn't work, but oh, I'm going to be excited to see how it how it happens. And yeah. right from the first time I see that bike on track in Jerez and on the 24th, that's what's that's what's going to be the big question mark for me. Well, I when think you that's were, more the oh, question sorry, though, isn't sorry. it, Jay? Yeah. Does does those two riders have more of an impact on on 2024's World Superbike season than Marquez's impact on the MotoGP season? Like, I don't think that Marquez moving to Ducati gets as many new viewers as this battle that or this this change in world superbike could get new viewers. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm not saying you guys are going to blow up the size of MotoGP, but what I'm saying is is that I think the people if they hear the news, if they get the information about what's happening between Top Rack Johnny and Bautista and then all these new riders that are coming in like Sam Lowe's, you know, on a Ducati and all these other people then I think it's going to have more of a positive impact on World Superbike than just Marquez going to Ducati is going to have a positive as a percentage, right? That That's kind of my point. I would love to agree with you, but in 2020, we had the best racing in the world and it didn't translate to a much bigger audience that was held in for the last few years. Mark went to Ducati on the Tuesday in Valencia and the test was packed, you know, mm-hmm. the, like, I was talking to the guys on, on, on my podcast and they were all saying that if you if you didn't judge the traffic right, you didn't get to see Mark's first lap. And that was for the test. This is always yeah. a test that, you know, there's a thousand people at. Now it was actually where it was properly busy. And I think that that's why it's different. Now, in terms of the overall championship, the dynamics on track, Mark going to Ducati doesn't change anything. Ducati's going to win the world championship next year because they've got the best bike by a distance. So Mark going there means that the rider might change who wins the championship, but nothing else does. Toprak and Johnny changing could change the balance in the World Superbike paddock. And that's what makes that a little bit more interesting in terms of if you're just looking at it from a storyline dynamic. Now, look, I think that part of the reason why Honda is in the position that they're in is because Mark has spent so much time in the offseason injured over the last couple of years. They lost their way in development of the bike and, and you know everything was about Mark, 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 Mark. Can somebody ride Mark's bike? Now you're going to put him into a pool of an older motorcycle. Mark doesn't have the responsibility of leading the train. Gigi Delino listens to all eight riders and they get input, but he's not going to have the latest and greatest equipment allegedly, right? Because that's going to be a nightmare for Ducati, both manufacturing and to be able to deal with your factory team. So do you guys think that Mark is in a position now where he would enjoy not being the lead guy not being responsible for the development of an entire direction of a motorcycle. And he can actually just enjoy sitting back and getting a sorted bike and just racing as fast as he possibly can. You think that's going to play into his mental state, Jay? I'll tell you right now, the mentality of going to a racetrack and being able to focus on doing something that he loves, which is winning. I don't feel like he has been able to go to the track in years, Greg, to your point with injury and things that, He's been able to go to the track and feel like I'm the best guy here and I can beat everybody. He didn't have the package underneath him. And every time he tried, he fell. You look at all of the Honda riders crashes. They're all like these tipping into corners, low sides. There's obviously something fundamentally wrong with uh, the geometry or design of the bike, the way it currently sits. And I think that it's impossible, even if you're, even if you're Mark Marquez, 
to be able to go to these races. I mean, you look at what Rossi, when he went to Ducati, it was, it was almost like it was, it's almost sad because you're watching the guy that has just been so dominant through history, one on so many different bikes as Greg likes to talk about. And man, that, that poor guy couldn't do anything on that bike. Couldn't do a thing. And I think with Marquez the last year or two, where was the real teller for me, Steve, I think the real teller was Saxon ring this year, a track that he dominates at. He crashed four times. He wasn't anywhere close to lap time wise. Controversy surrounded him there um, with a lot of things. And legitimately from that point of the season on, it was like he was just riding around to finish. Now there was a couple of little spurts of brilliance towards the end where I think that he was trying to show Honda that, you know, I'm still here, even though I've made the announcement, there was a little bit of a spark there where he still wanted to go out and try to win. Um, And he rode as hard as I think he could, but the end of the day, you don't see Mark Marquez finishing 14th and 13th and 15th the way we did at the end of the year, some of the rounds, because I think he just wanted to get on with it. And to that point, you saw you saw what Acosta's main thought philosophy was after he won the championship in Moto2. It was like those last three rounds that he did after he won the championship at Sepang, last couple rounds he did were like, I'm literally riding around now and just I want to get on the MotoGP. I think that for Mark Marquez, now he can go to the track. He knows the bike's being developed. He knows it's the best bike out there. I'm sure that Marquez looks at riders that are that he feels are way beneath him, and he sees them competitive and goes, I get on that bike, and I'm going to smoke these guys. So him being able to go to the track now with the mental attitude of, I can go win races again and have fun. That's what he keeps talking about. The fun is at the front. My Uncle Kenny used to always tell me, Jay, you know, you know, Where's the fun? It's at the front. Absolutely it is. And that's where he'll find himself, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting with Mark that when you look at the season, and Saxon Ring is the perfect point to be able to pinpoint where it changed from because he had what? He had uh, the pole at the first race of the year, then he was front row his next couple of races after he came back from the injury. But he crashed out of all three of those races. I think he was you know, in the top four in two of them, and he was running second in in the next thing, maybe at Le Mans or something like that. So if those races play out slightly differently, his season plays out totally differently. Mm-hmm. Instead, then he's been chasing after lost points and the motivation goes down. Even for someone like Mark, the motivation went down. Right. Saxon ring, I thought he had more than four crashes. I thought he might have had six crashes that weekend. You know, and when you yeah, look at he may have, a weekend yeah. like that, you know, that's where Mark had to think, this is this is this is my playground. This is where I've always dominated, and I can't get the job done here. And that's when it switched in in his mind, and that's where it was great to see him get that sprint race podium in Valencia, just mm-hmm. to at least finish off with Repsol Honda on a good note, and then move on to next year and a new challenge. So I think it's it's interesting that like I've I've always every time I've been on the pod I've always said like your your margin for error is the most important thing in racing. Mark was that margin for error, and right. uh, you know he he's gone from Honda now, so they need to make up for it. And um, I always think that your your best example of that is when you look at the NBA when the star player leaves, can the team recover? Yeah. You know, more often yeah. than not, they can't. They go into a rebuild mode, and it takes years to get back to the top. You look at Brady leaving the Patriots, and now. Like they're the worst team in the NFL, basically, oh, just yeah. because uh, that was all about that whole UK thing at the beginning of this podcast. That's beautiful that you said that, right? If, like, that was a good callback you if you're a comedian. Me, if you can tell me any reason why Bill Belichick is still, 
you know, viewed as being the best coach of all time, the best general manager, the guy that's entrusted with all the decision making, then I'm all ears. But he shows you <laughs> that you need to have the full team, the full package all around it. Mark doesn't have that, but yeah. he goes to Ducati now and he will have, you know, all the things that he needs. He'll have a good bike. He'll have a good crew chief. You know, I remember when Frankie Carcetti got the job to work with Juan Mir at Suzuki, I was thinking, you know, this is a this is a very brave decision to bring in a BSB crew chief that, you know, with Jake Dixon won at Knock Hill, I think, and that was about it. You know, to to be able to bring him into a factory MotoGP team, you know, I thought like, let's wait and see what happens. But, you know, I wasn't expecting that he was going to be the guy that would win a world championship with Mir. And right. now you look at those decisions that he made with Digia in the last third of the season, Perfect. and you're looking at it and thinking, you know what? He might be a genius, you know, and then you, you pair him up with Mark and he'll know the bike and he'll know what to be able to do to get the bike into the right window. And then he's got Mark Marquez as his rider. Right. So, right. you know, there can be there can be no bigger motivation to wake up at seven o'clock in the morning, go to work, to go to bed at midnight with, you know, notes in your notebook, trying to get ready for the next test, the next race, whatever it is. You know, like that's that's going to be something again when we go to the Sepang test. You know, what are they going to do differently to everyone else? Well, the other thing, too, I'd like to add real quick is, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in the past, Jason, is has to do with like a rider isn't alone, right? They have to have a good crew chief. A good crew chief makes all. a big you difference. You have to have it all, man. But, yeah. but, but also to have it all is you have to have good leadership. And Steve, if you really look at what Ducati has created, the fact that Gigi Delinia makes every rider, all eight riders, feel like they have a say-so is important. Every rider says the same thing about Gigi. He listens to my feedback. He values my feedback. It makes a difference. If you go to Tardazzi and you go to, um, you know, basically all that leadership, if you think about the things that they've done, you know, and the things that they say when Digi Antonio wins a race and then they walk up to um, my boy, who am I thinking of? Your boy. Yeah. When they walk up to Paolo, and they say, what do you think about the fact that Digi Antonio is not going to have a ride next year? And he steps up and says, it's absolutely insane why he doesn't get a ride. We need to find a place for him. If if there's no ride for him, he will have a place at Ducati one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's going to be wild cards or whatever it's going to be. You have leadership like that, that trickles down. I cannot stress the importance of that. You know, and there's talk about getting rid of what's his name at HRC and and Brivio coming in and possibly replacing him. Leadership at the top makes a huge difference on how any team works. And so that to me, you know, is is really more the secret sauce of Ducati than anything else. Yeah. I yeah. think one of the things that's interesting with it is when and I might be wrong on this, but more often than not, when a rider fails that's where you'll see Gigi afterwards. Like, I think after Valencia, he was down in the, the Pramac pit box rather than in the Ducati pit box or the you know the factory Ducati pit box to, to be there for Jorge Martin whenever he came back into the box. And things like that make a big difference because it shows that for him, he's just about Ducati. Tardazzi's the exact opposite. He's there to be the factory team's team manager and like him standing in front of Martin's bike in pit lane and just getting in the way, you know, it's it's ludicrous on one hand, but absolutely hilarious. And the kind of, kind of funny, the yeah. kind of the kind of stuff that we all want to see 
Mm-hmm. Just because Tardozzi needs to win just as much as the riders. For Gigi, as long as Ducati win, he's happy. I did find it interesting when Giovanni was making his comments because, you know, he has to know at that time he's going to be on the VO46 bike, or at least it's a possibility. But at the end of the day, it's Paolo and Gigi's decision making that makes it where riders go as well. Like, obviously, there is, there is, you know, the teams can make their own minds up about XYZ, but if, you know, Ducati Factory come to you and say, we want this rider on your bike, it effectively means we're going to pay for that rider to be on your bike. Do you want to take this free money? And of course, they're going to take the free money, put the fast rider on their bike. But also, at the time when, you know, all the decisions are made, Alex Marquez was outperforming Digia by a margin. You look at uh, Silverstone and places like that. All the way through the summer, he was the top Grassini rider. They want to keep Alex? Fair enough. You know, if they had decided to keep Digia as well at that time, it would have been something where you look at it and say, maybe they've spotted something that we haven't. But when Mark Marquez becomes available, like, no harm. Even with the last five races Digia did, you're dropping him like a hot stone and you're putting Mark onto your bike because he's Mark Marquez. But it's for Ducati to be able to find a way to be able to keep those riders around. And like Ducati did try and keep him on a superbike. The whole way through the summer, that's what we thought was going to happen. We thought that Digi was going to be on a superbike, but that came down to the fact that he wasn't performing well enough in MotoGP. And then your opportunities are, do you go back to Moto2 or do you go to superbikes? So when you look at the dynamics of everything we've talked about, not to cut you off, Steve, but like you said, without top rack moving, there's a lot of other movements that don't happen. Um, can you imagine what it would have been like if Digia had been getting the results at the start of the year this year, the way he did at the end? I found Digia's performance this year to be the most, um, I think out of all the series, uh, watching what he did the last, say, five rounds was really inspiring. And I found his speed to be very easy. I never felt once that he was ever on the limit of of doing something silly or I never felt like... You know, when you watch Jorge Martin ride, as brilliant as he is, and he's one of my favorite riders to watch, he always looks like he's... He's always looking like he's on edge. Bagnaya never really looks like he's on complete edge, but he makes a shit ton of mistakes, I still see. Digia, I can arguably say that that... I didn't see any mistakes the last four or five rounds that he actually was still running up front and he was catching guys and racing with championship riders. Um, there's kind of an, I guess, an unsaid rule that when you get around championship guys that are running for the championship, uh, you try to give them a little bit of a berth or, or you give them a little bit of a, almost like a respect, right? And you could see that with certain riders definitely in the championship. Um, and, and we don't know all the intricacies of what each rider thinks of them, of each rider, you know? Um, but Digia, I thought handled himself so well when he got around Martin or Bagnaya. I thought that all of his passes were, none of them were ever on edge. I mean, he's going to be a contender next year. He's going to be up front. I think that he doesn't have the flash and the brilliance and the outright looking speed in the sense of during a race, He's the guy that's going to sneak up on guys, though, and be there and collect points. If he turns those 12ths and 13ths and 14ths that he had at the beginning of the year into top fives every weekend, um, he'll be there. He'll be just gathering chunks and chunks of points and probably doing so without making the mistakes of some of the other guys. We'll see. Yeah. I say that because he came on with a great crew chief. Yep. And he came on when he knew he was losing the job. So the question yeah, is, it's hold on. Break. The question is, is he that guy? Okay, that's what we need an answer to. We need an answer to 
he, you know, he, he's he's now going to be his third year on a Ducati with three different crew chiefs. It's going to make a difference. And then we'll see, because the one thing we know is we all know this. OK, if you have something at stake and you're passionate, you do better. Look at how fast Marquez was at Valencia and all that emotion of the last race and everything else. He was noticeably quicker and noticeably closer to the front. Because you had all that emotion tied to it. Did you Antonio yeah, was going to lose his job? It's a different type of track, though. Valencia is a different type of track. I understand you gotta, that, but I'm just the thing I'm you not have to understand that, about yeah. Digia, though, G Dub. The other great, great thing that he's got going for him is that the Ducatis all share information. He's going to be able to take the baselines from Grassini bike and plug them right into the VR bike and go. Because VR46 is not going to want him to come over and fail. They're going to be like, okay, what has he done in the last half of the season that's made him competitive. They've obviously found a setup of something that works for him. They plugged that in at the test at Valencia, Steve. It wasn't he in like top five or top six, like pretty immediately too. He went right out and went quick. He's got a really solid baseline. I think now in the sense of what he knows, Greg, had he been going to a different manufacturer had been signed because he had done so well the last few rounds, I would definitely go on that ship with you and start to think, well, maybe it has something to do with this. But I think he's going to be jumping on the same package. He's already got, he knows what works for him now. And all that information they have, they have all that information for him. I would, I would agree with that. But then I would also say he's going to be on the same bike as Mark Marquez. Is he better than Mark? No. He's going to be on the same bike as Marco Bezzecchi. Is he better than Bezzecchi? Again, all of the data points that he isn't. So well, you're only doing yeah. the data based off if you go the last five races. He's probably the second or third highest point scorer in the last five round, or last five rounds. Yeah, so you can say that third, he was he was third from India onwards. But you've got two years of what we've seen. I get it, and you know I'm, I'm I think that, and I'm not I'm saying more that he's interested than anybody. To be with Ducati in that regard is what happens with Morbidelli because he's coming in after a disastrous few years, yep. whereas. Digia should start next season where he is now, which is competitive. That's, That's not right. say he's going to be on the podium, but yeah. let's say he's top six, top seven, you know, all the time. Fair enough. That's tremendous. Mark's going to be up there. Bezeki's going to be up there. You know, has Bastianini made the step that we saw at Sepang? Or is that a one-off? You know, that's an interesting one. We know Martin's going to be right up there. We know Pecco's going to be right up there. So, you know, I think that's where it becomes really difficult. It's all of these riders are great. You know, and I always think it's one of those things that like, and we all fall into the trap when we're when we're commentating, when we're writing, whatever it is, that you know we kind of take it for granted that everyone knows and understands that we believe all of these riders are great, but someone has to be first and someone has to be last. When you've got eight Ducatis out there, someone has to be the slowest one, and that's where it becomes really interesting to see where that pecking order develops. Mm-hmm. I look at it and I think Digia was unbelievable at the end of the season. Can he do that for a full season? We don't know that yet. Mm-hmm. I'd be surprised if he's, you know, the fourth fastest Ducati rider over the course of this full season. And that's how I'll judge him when we get to the end of next season, where he stands in relation to everyone else. But I think Pecco, Martin, Bezeki, and Mark are going to be better than him over the full season. Yeah. And I mean, that's just to be determined. I mean, it really is. And I think that, I, I just well, find that his is, story was interesting. No one's going to remember this in a year's time. So we yeah. can say anything we want. Yeah. Yeah, nobody will remember by next How week. dare mate. you. So How dare you. I'm going to write this all down on my whiteboard in my office and go and revisit this next year. And so you said this and you said that. I just want to know that we're going to have Tardazzi's heart rate for the rest of 
of life. All right. That's I, all I, I give a shit I, about. I think this podcast is over. Are we done? Are we ready to wrap <laughs> this thing up, boys? Let's uh, do it. Yeah, because we got to have Stevie on again. We didn't really what, get – we talked about you know just, some just stuff. Before, but yeah. we, before we finish up, we didn't really talk about Acosta too much. Yeah, I'm super excited to see Me how that too. goes, Jay. Like, like you said, Jay, once he won the championship, he checked out a Moto2. Yep. I think, you know, I've, I've I've worked in junior GP when Pedro was coming up through European Talent Cup and then into the Moto3 class, and he was always really impressive in CEV as it was back then. But he wasn't as much of a standout as you probably would have thought. You know, Izan Guevara was arguably a little bit more sensational. You know, he came from the eighth row with a great three races to win in Aragon and things like that. So, you know, his high marks were really good. But when you look at Acosta, since he's jumped onto, you know, the Moto2 bike specifically, and now onto the GP bike, like he just looks the yeah, real great. deal. I'm excited to see how that goes because it then leads to the big question of what do KTM do? And Brad Binder's going to stay there unless Jack Miller's leading the world championship by the time we get to, you know, Mugello or something like that. And then what happens for Miller? Does he go to Gas Gas? Does he have to try and find something else in MotoGP? Acosta, you know, signing him is one of those things that, you know, it gives KTM the luxury of, you know, we leave it in the rider's hands. Whoever's getting those results will get the factory bike. You know, they're not going to be like Honda left, you know, wondering, oh my God, who are we going to put on this bike now that Mark's gone? They're just going to be like, let's plug in the next one. And then guess what's going to happen in a year's time? We're going to plug in another guy as well because they're going to have riders coming up through, you know, from Moto Two or whatever it is. I just yeah, hope that Acosta doesn't get lost in the wash because Ducati's dominance, and then they have so many good riders that he doesn't, you know, that he doesn't get kind of pushed to the side. But hopefully, we'll be able to see his progress, and he'll stick his nose up there in some really fast races early on in the season. Because even Jorge Lorenzo came out like two days ago and said that he feels like Pedro Acosta is that one rider that's one born every generation kind of thing. And that's a, that's a bold statement. So we'll see. Well, that's one of the things that I remember whenever the news was announced, one of the big things I said was that the only bad decision is not to put a Costa on your bike because you don't want to lose him. They lost Mark Marquez. He was a KTM rider when he came to Moto, well, one, two fives as it was back then. And they lost him and they're still trying to get him back. You know, it's 15 years later mm-hmm. and they still haven't been able to get Mark back on their bike. So I think that's one of the things that was interesting with Acosta. They weren't going to be betting again like that. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Anything else, Jason? No, I mean, I, I, I feel like we could have a whole other podcast just talking World Superbike. I know we kind of, I, I sent it off in a direction of three riders that I thought were going to be intriguing throughout the course of 24. But I definitely would like to get Steve back on, talk about the tests that, that are coming up in January and maybe after we can have a chat with him about that. Sooner or later, we got to get him back out here teeing it up with me. We could do this thing live, Steve. We could do it right here. Um, oh, God. No, Hold on. Was... One of the things I forgot to mention, by the way. Oh, boy. No, is is we have a resolution for the MotoGP Fantasy. Okay, so, oh, yeah. Yeah, so the controversy last week was we have two winners at the top. They were tied in points. The average thing, it was kind of a messed up thing. Go back and listen to last week's podcast if you're curious. However, with that said... At the top of the leaderboard was King Fisher, 3,163 points, tied with Moto Ranch 46, 3,163 points. I call the Rye Helmets. They are going to give each one of these riders their own helmet. So they're going to come up with their own helmet. King Fisher, Jay, got Q5s. However, in in talking with King Fisher, um, 
he doesn't have a track. He doesn't ride track day, he rides street bike. So basically AMA Someday 91, who was third, who got a set of Dunlop Q5Ss, which are the street version, actually wants the Q5s. So AMA Someday 91 is going to get the Q5s because he's got a track day bike. Kingfisher is going to get the Q5Ss. I have not heard from Motor Ranch 46 yet, but the good news is we're giving away those two helmets <laughs> and that's where we are. Now, Jason Pridmore, Steve English, we are in a position where we got to give away the JP43 training where you're going to gift someone a day of one-on-one training with you. What are we yeah. going to do? Who are we going to pick? I know that you haven't been really through the list, so what's the plan? What are we doing? Let's name a winner. Well, look, at the end of the day, it's pretty hard to just randomly do it. And I also like the idea, the fact that we have a group of people that stayed in it with us all year long. So how do we pick from this? And Stevie came on the podcast uh, before we even started it. And the the idea is if you're going to be coming to JP 43 training, we might as well take the 43rd person who ended up winning this. And uh, super happy to say that that's going to go to Gatsby Racing. And uh, they ended up 43rd. Um, they actually, Greg... I, I, when you guys said this, I went to see if we were going to have the same problem as we did with our top two. And if you look at it, gas fee racing wins by 0.5 of a point over club 220. And, um, so I'm excited about that. I don't know anything about gas fee racing. I'm sure they'll reach out to us. I hope they reach out to us soon and, uh, we can start making a plan on how we're going to work this out to where we could spend a day riding around a track together. Uh, somewhere. So I'm excited about it and I'm glad that we were able to do this. And, you know, for all, all the people out there um, that that, uh, that have joined us on this, hopefully you tell your friends we can get even more next year. As long as that guy Wooden Spoon didn't win, I was okay with pretty much everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he's a good re- guy. Oh, is he a super guy, Wooden Spoon? So yeah, to reach out guy. to us, by the guy. way, I like go, that to, guy. Go, go to Jason's Instagram page and send yeah. a message or come to my page or whatever my, my, yeah my Instagram and send me a message or Jason a message. And that's how we're going to connect. That's the best way to get a hold of us. I think. Yeah. Because Tristan Brinken from, he was, he was Moto Ranch 46. He ended up third, uh, in, in our, or, uh, I'm sorry. Second, um, second in our thing. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's when you start to read that the people are reaching out to us and, and writing to us and letting us know about whatever it is. Um, AMA somebody, AM day, Sunday, 91 is Tristan's thing. And, um, he had written out to us about, uh, the podcast and what we had done and all that stuff. So, um, I think you reached out to him, Greg, too, about getting some Q5s. Yep. So yeah, so he's, he's had, I mean, it's just great. Thank you to all of you for, uh, for, you know, being part of this and, and, uh, doing our, our fantasy stuff. You want to say something, Steve? I have to say very quickly, there's some of the, the teams in your fantasy that I really do respect. Mm-hmm. And in P12, the shit idiots. The shit idiots. That's great. I don't even know how to say it. Shit idiots. But I love those guys. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's There are some beauties on here. Um, like you said earlier, 24th, Kiss My Assin. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could go right down through the list. It bums me out that skips ahead of us by the way he's not ahead of stevie stevie very credible by the way 15th and representing yeah, for ireland there tip, very tip very the cap. yeah yeah he made the very, uk proud very good yeah made the uk proud 
Anyways, he's gonna come um, through, come through this podcast and rip my throat out. I understand that. Um, this is being recorded, so I'm not gonna say anything too bad. But yeah. when the recording stops, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, we'll yeah, see, yeah, we'll yeah. see, we'll see what's Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. I apologize uh, to all my Irish friends out there. I, I was just just having a little bit of fun. I, we will say this: that Jason and I have made a decision. We will do Supercross uh, yeah. Fantasy again. And we're going to stick with what we've been doing the last couple of years, which will be the Pulp MX Fantasy League. We understand it's difficult for some people because you got to really play every week to stay in it. But we just think that the the way it works, the little bit of thought going into Supercross, the fact that it is wintertime for us, we have a little bit more time to put into it. So, Steve English, will you be participating in the Grace Garage Pod with Coach Jason Pridmore Supercross Fantasy League again? I do. I do usually do the Pulp MX Fantasy, so I'll be doing it again. And uh, like you said, Greg, it's actually one of the better ones because it's what top six and then a random position. So mm-hmm. it's always pretty interesting just to be able to look for the form guides. And I like watching Supercross because I'm not knowledgeable about motocross or Supercross or anything. I just like watching it. You know, it's cool. And uh, I actually, I do want to get out to around at some stage. I looked at it and saw that like Daytona wasn't too bad and then maybe stay out for the 200. Mm. So uh, I'd like to do that this year, you know, and, and see what it's like. I mean, there are golf courses in Florida, Stevie. I mean, I've I heard. did think that as well, Jay. I've and heard. I thought so. that in the gap between the Saturday and whenever you're having to then get ready for the 200, I thought it could be ideal. No yeah, boy. yeah, be good. That two years ago, Greg and I went there. Remember how cold it was? Yeah, like two years ago. Like, like, like Greg, I can't and I'm not telling it to me. Not it to me there. It was in the it was in the low 30s. Like yeah. it was crazy, crazy. No, and we were no lucky to get the races in, in Florida that I'm aware of. So flights were canceled all over the place. And then because last that, year, that's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday thing, Steve. So your your gap is basically Saturday through Wednesday is the time that you'd have the golf. Then we were on track Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So Sunday morning we woke up and it was like 30 degrees. Oh, it was freezing and Greg couldn't even catch his flight. And then he had to drive and it was a mess. But, but yeah, if you're coming out, Steve, we'll make sure the weather's going to be good, but hopefully I'll see you before then. I'll break out the ping. I twos and I'll come down early. Oh boy. Hey everybody. We're an hour and 40 into this. If you're still with us, thanks for listening. Stevie, as always, Love having you on. Thanks for having us on, uh, or thanks for coming on with us, rather. And uh, for everybody out there, have a safe weekend. We'll talk next week. G-Dub and I will figure out where we're going to do this podcast from, because I'll be on the road again. But you'll hear from us next week. See you, everybody. Mm-hmm.